Hi, I'm Amber, and welcome to the Lone Star Keto Podcast. Today, I have a special guest with us, Dr. Ashley Lucas. She is a PhD nutritionist, a registered dietitian, and an author. Welcome, Ashley. Thanks so much for having me, Amber. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, Ashley, first, let's go ahead and go over your background. Sure. Yeah. Um, You know, I um, started training as a child really, uh, in classical ballet. And so I spent my youth training in that area and, um, I wasn't really naturally very talented. So I had to push my body to do things that it didn't want to do. And as a result, I was often injured. I had stress fractures in my feet. I think the majority of my dance training, I had a really notable stress fracture in my back and had to wear this really thick molded back brace to try to heal from it. And of course was non-compliant because I never wanted to let go of dancing. And so still have back pain today. And it took me at double as long as it should to heal. But, you know, I, I pushed myself to do it and I had a fairly successful career just because I would say my obsession to overcome what anyone would say that I couldn't do. And, uh, I, my body, just like I said, didn't conform. And so I was often told that I wasn't good enough and that I was fat despite countless times of, you know, managing my calories and counting calories and counting fat grams and avoiding red meat because I was told that it was fattening. And I really believe that it was because of my chronic and severe, likely severe calorie restriction during that time that I was injured as I was. And so, you know, I, I, I constantly fought that and the, the body image that was required as a ballet dancer, but I continued to push along and I had a fairly successful career and danced with professional ballet companies across the country. And I was chosen to perform in New York at one point and I was so excited, you know, that's every dancer's dream is to land in New York to perform. And instead of finding myself in the spotlight, I found myself landed in the ER and I had no idea what was happening. I thought that I was having a heart attack. I thought maybe it was MS. I was having all of these odd symptoms, really scared for my health future. And after a whole bunch of different tests, the neurologist came back and said that I was simply underfed and overexercised. I think, I think it was 20 plus years of this struggle um, and not meeting the requirements I needed for the sport. It just came at me like a tidal wave. And so I was flown home. I missed all of the once in a lifetime performances. I was feeling like a failure because, you know, I I had to step away and the the physician told me that I needed to stop dancing and that I just could not continue. And it was my identity. It might not sound like a big deal, but to me, it was 20 years of, of struggle. And I had to step away from that career before I think many people would have said that I really had made it. And so that just Um, took me down. And that was many years of trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. I didn't know, you know, what to do with myself. And one thing that I took out of my dancing career was that I knew how significantly nutrition or really lack thereof impacted my own sport performance. So I went that direction. I went in and earned my PhD in sports nutrition and chronic disease from Virginia Tech. And I studied exactly that. I I wanted to learn, you know, how can people 
how can I drop weight, achieve this optimal body composition without severely restricting calories? I knew there had to be a way, there was something missing. And how do we do this in a way that supports the metabolism rather than injure it in the process? And then most importantly, what do we need to do mentally and emotionally and behaviorally to create sustainable change? And so that's what I studied during my PhD work. And then I went on and I taught at The Ohio State University. But what I recognized about myself there is that I'm a very impatient person and I have to see dramatic change in people right away or I'm just not satisfied. And so I went back to school again and completed my dietetic internship and I'm a registered dietitian because I really wanted to be a true expert in the field of weight management. And that's what I felt that it would take. But there was an issue there with all of that training. I was just told and taught the same misinformation. I was told that you need to eat less and you need to watch your calories because it's all about calories in and calories out that you simply need to move more. If you want to drop weight, you need to have more willpower, a bit more discipline. If you have type two diabetes, you need to eat a moderate carb level. I mean, all of these things that just didn't make sense to me. I knew that I had a lot of discipline coming from this professional ballet background. You know, we have a lot of discipline in that field and the calorie in and out thing didn't work for me. And if it did, if I got lean enough for my sport, man, my metabolism was wrecked and I had stress fractures all over. So I took what I learned from my PhD work and all that research, and I flipped everything that I learned during my dietetic internship upside down and created what we call now this PhD approach toward dropping weight and creating sustainable change. A lot of behavior work also with this kind of totally unconventional dietary approach. And so that's where I am now. We have, um, you know, I have five locations across the country. And it, our, my company's called PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition. And we challenge the standard ways of thinking when it comes to nutrition and weight loss and sustainable change. And um, it's just really purposeful for me because I get to use my experience from my past that might not have been all positive to really create positive change in a lot of other people. I love that. And I can relate in, in, in a way to your past and the whole identity thing through my daughter, because she was a competitive dancer as well as a competitive <laughs> gymnast for many yeah. years. And so I saw that in her too. And she also suffered a lot of like injuries and stuff as she went out. So I get that. Now, my question to you, and I think I already know the answer based on what you just said, but I want to hear it after all you went through during that ballet period of your life, do you regret what, what you did, even with all the injuries and all that kind of thing. Do you regret that? Not a single second of it. That's why my, my daughter says the same exact thing. Cause my husband's always like, I feel so bad. I feel like maybe we, you know, enabled you to do, do this and we feel bad. And my daughter's like, why? No, I wouldn't change anything. And it's like, she would have probably found it herself. It's just something that we needed to go through. And, and probably like your daughter, I mean, I, I learned and grew and it helped to cultivate like everything that I do and, and who I am, which I think is pretty positive. Um, so, and I got to meet such great people and, and people who are just so empowered and um, motivated and determined. It taught me persistence. We, I take all of those 
really great attributes because there are a ton and I put them into everything that I do now. And I believe that's why PhD is so successful in helping others is because, you know, I really learned those characteristics and traits through the the dancing career. I I totally agree with that. And I see that in my daughter too, because anything she puts her mind to, she's going to accomplish because she, she has that, you know, determination that, you know, work ethic that, you know, and, and that's what she learned through all of of that, you know, competitive stage of her life. I mean, she had no choice, but to learn that if she was going to do what she wanted to do. So I think that's amazing. And I love that. And I loved how you turned that into something so incredibly positive and so needed. Mm-hmm. But before we get into the meat of it, you mentioned um, several myths that you kind of, it just drives you nuts. I want to hear about those. You kind of alluded to one already, but if you mm-hmm. could go over some of those myths that you have turned upside down. Yeah. Yeah. I love those. So I'd say the first one is uh, that we've been told weight loss is all about calories in and calories out, right? So the first component of that is that we need to restrict calories. And when you really dive into the literature behind that, you find that severe calorie restriction does not lead to sustainable results. We might drop weight um, and potentially quickly, but in the end, it really shuts down our metabolism. And this is what I studied during my PhD work as I looked at a group of athletes who chronically restricted themselves. And you would think that their metabolic rate would be higher because they're active, they're athletic, they're working out all the time. Actually, it was a group of professional ballet dancers. You know, we're dancing eight hours a day, but no, their metabolic speed, their the rate, their metabolism was was chronically depressed. It was slower than those who were pair matched to them who were just recreationally active with the same amount of muscle mass. So if we severely restrict our calories chronically, our metabolism shuts down, we can't eat as much as we used to, and we start to witness weight regain. So that's why if you've gone about dropping weight through severe calorie restriction, you start to just eat like a normal person and it all comes back. It's not your fault. It's because your metabolism has shut down and it takes a while to, to get it back. I mean, you really have to heal from that type of situation. And then a lot of the literature also shows that it impacts our mood. We have increased anxiety and depression when we're severely restricting calories. And then we're just nutritionally starving ourselves, our hair, our skin, our nails. It just doesn't look good. Um, oftentimes when I'm talking to clients and I'm, I'm saying, you know, this is your optimal weight. This is what you're going to do. You're going to drop 50, 80 pounds or something. They'll say, well, the last time I did that, I looked so sickly. Well, and then I asked them how they did that. And it was through severe calorie restriction or HCG or in hormonal shots. And, or they were you know, exercising like crazy and doing these things. Well, that's why you look sickly when you get to this optimal place. If you do it in a healthy way, it looks and feels totally different. So I would say that's number one. Number two then is the other, the output aspect of it that you need to exercise more. And if we really, again, dive into the literature behind that, we find that exercise, although important for all these different things for, you know, sleep and stress and mood and, and your heart capacity, it's not a great weight loss tool. There was a study that came out and looked at a group of heavier individuals and had them eat a certain amount and move more. And when they looked at calories in and out, you would think that everybody would have dropped 10 pounds and no one did. There was a large group that dropped seven, 
a, a medium-sized group that dropped five, and then the next largest group only dropped to two. So really our genetics, our hormones, all the other aspects, our level of stress impacts how our body responds to an increased exercise load. So we want to move. I'm not saying that we just want to sit all day, but if you're just trying to go to the gym, that is not the answer for our clients. We say a 30 minute brisk walk. And the reason why we want a brisk walk is more for the mental aspect and to get the lymph going but it's not to burn calories. I'd say never do the elliptical and look at that calorie thing, <laughs> the calorie tracker there, um, because it's just gonna drive you crazy and it doesn't mean anything anyway. So I'd say those are, are two really big, important aspects. Also, you know, a study came out looking at um, the biggest loser contestants, you know, that reality show. Mm -hmm. And um, they looked at their metabolic speed, you know, how quickly they're burning calories throughout the day before the show and after the show and their metabolism dropped by 800 calories a day after the show. And then six years later, they reevaluated it and their metabolism hadn't improved. So it's a big deal on how you go about dropping weight and you want to make sure that you do it in a healthy way so that your body adapt, adapts functionally rather than just getting into the state where it's um, kind of in that starvation mode. And then I think the other uh, myths come from, you know, more of the behavioral aspect. We're told that we need to have more willpower or we need to have more discipline. When I say weight loss has nothing to do with you, it's not a flaw in willpower. It has nothing to do with your personality, it has nothing to do with that at all. It is not your fault. And so just taking the shame and the guilt and the unworthiness and all of that out of it and really looking at what's going on, um, you know, metabolically and hormonally and what habits are we looking to change? And then the last one in this phrase that I really, really don't like is eat everything in moderation. You know, I, I really, it bothers me when people come in, they're like, well, I know I just, you know, everything in moderation or, you know, once we drop the weight, our clients are like, okay, now am I just going to eat everything in moderation? Well, that didn't work before. So the answer is no. And I know before the show, Amber, we were talking a little bit about food addiction. And I do think that weight loss is an addiction recovery process. So if we go in and we tell that person, well, yeah, just you know, eat that food in moderation. If it's their trigger food and they can't do that, then man, that we are doing that person a disservice. It is unfair. It is not their fault. It's like telling an alcoholic, well, just have one glass of wine and it's fine. So I'd say that those there are the main myths that I usually point out. Yes. And I agree with every single one of them. I have lived it. I have, oh God. And, and when I hear it now, I just cringe. And so many, especially on TikTok, I admit it. Okay. I'm on TikTok, whatever. But, <laughs> but, but there's these little cutesy little girls and they're like, you can eat anything in moderation, <laughs> you know, and they're so cute and all this. And I'm like, you must not be a food addict if you really, in fact, can do this. Not, of course, it doesn't mean they're not doing damage to their body. They may not just see it on the outside yet. But, mm -hmm. you know, to, to say that, I think that is horrible without knowing if somebody is an, a food addict or not, yeah. or carb addict, whatever you want to right. say. That's not, that's not right because it's an illness of the brain. It is, mm -hmm. it is not, like you said, a flaw. Mm -mm. That is, but that is the way society looks at it. Oh, you're just lazy. You're, you're eating too much and you're not moving enough. Good girl right. drives me nuts. So thank you for saying that. Yes. <laughs> okay. I am really um, curious about 
I love the way you put it, that the growth of fat is like a tumor. Yes. Can you talk about that? Because I I think that is such a great visual, such a good way of looking at it. Yeah. So here's what happens is uh, we have these triggers in our life and the triggers change the way that we tolerate our food. Everybody's trigger is different. We're all unique, but let me give you a few examples of what that would be. So, you know, a trigger that I often see for women might be pregnancy. It could be even if they've had multiple children and say they can get their body back down to this place where they like and feel comfortable after a baby one and two, but baby three rocks their world. And they're like, what the heck I'm eating the same way that I did before, but my body is no longer responding. That third pregnancy was just this trigger. It changed the way their body tolerated food. Just like, you know, after I had my first son, my hair became curly you know, like it, it didn't make sense. We, it can change different aspects of our body. We don't think it changes the way that we function inside, but it does. Um, for other women, it might be menopause, you know, before 50. Yep. It was just, didn't have to think about what they, ate, what they did. They maintained the sweet spot. And then on their 50th birthday, they got this gift <laughs> where things just completely changed for men. It's usually some major stress response like a big relationship shift or perhaps a big job change. And it just changes the way that their body functions. So we have these unique triggers for some people, their, their trigger was birth. These are those people who just have struggled with their weight for a lifetime. They remember when they were three years old or, you know, they see pictures when they're three or remember when they're eight and that they just already were, you know, heavier than their friends. Their mom put them in Weight Watchers when they're 10. These are the people who just have a genetic predisposition to store fat really efficiently. So we have these triggers and not over time, we start to accumulate this fat and this fat starts to pummel specifically into the belly area. And this belly area, this fat in there is called visceral fat. And it's different than the fat throughout the rest of the body because it's thick like a gel and it fills up the organs. So this is the deep fat that you can't freeze or laser or melt or sculpt away because it's in the organ. I want you to picture um, a ribeye beefsteak. You know, that marbling that's in that beefsteak that is so delicious and that outside white fat. Well, this is what your liver looks like if you're carrying a bit of this visceral fat in the belly. If we took a slice of your liver, it would look like a Kobe ribeye beefsteak. And so this specific type of fat gets in there. It grows its own little blood vessels, gets an oxygen supply going for it. And once it does, this fat mass starts to secrete hormones. And these hormones aren't in there to benefit you. They are in there to help this fat mass continue to get fatter as fast as possible. It's all it wants to do. It has its own agenda and all it wants to do is grow. And so now what you've accumulated in there, in there as a response to this trigger is this fat mass that's almost like a tumor. It acts in a similar way. It's secreting hormones that make you hungry, that make you crave and there is no willpower in the world that will overcome that, that craving. It slows your metabolism so you can look at a Subway sandwich and a Coke and gain five pounds. It makes you lazy because the last thing it wants you to do is go expend a ton of energy. Like I really want you to think that it's this entity that has demands and desires and urges and cravings and it will not rest until you feed it. 
So if you wake up at 2 a.m. to go get some cookies or a bowl of cereal, it's that fat mass in there that also has that addiction to these carby, sugary foods because all it wants to do is grow. It secretes this hormone called interleukin-6, which is a major inflammatory hormone. So you can take all the anti-inflammatories or turmeric in the world, and it's not going to touch the inflammatory hormones being secreted by this fat mass. You know, for some of our clients, they come in with psoriasis just as a random example. And after shifting their metabolism and reducing the amount of this visceral fat, we can see that go away. So there's just a lot of inflammation that this causes, right? This, this interleukin-6 is related to cancer and heart disease. It also secretes a hormone called aromatase, which in men takes your testosterone and converts it into estrogen. So if you're a man and you got fat mass in the belly, the chest, the throat, that's indicative of low T and high estrogen, and you're just going to continue to gain more fat mass. And it's all going to go in the belly, the chest and the throat. Then when you store fat in this area, you're at really high risk of sleep apnea and high blood pressure. So a lot of these men that we see have these situations because of where they're storing this excess fat weight. Same thing goes for women. It increases estrogen um, through the aromatase cycle, and that increases our risk of breast cancer significantly, the estrogen dependent type. And so that's what I mean by this fat mass being like a tumor. And so what happens often in society is we drop only a portion of our excess fat weight. Let's say you've got 50 pounds of this hungry fat mass is what I like to call it in your belly and you drop 30 pounds. You're like, you know what? I look and feel good enough. I've been going to the gym like crazy. I've not been eating much because that's usually how we lose weight, right? And I'm done with this struggle. This is good enough. Well, at that weight, you feel a lot better, but you've still got a whole bunch of it left in there, secreting the same hormones that got you up to your tipping point in the first place. And you are just going to regain. It's just a matter of time. It's like shaving the top off of a weed and leaving the root and you know what's going to happen. But then you regain and you think, oh my gosh, I'm a failure. I need more willpower. I need more discipline. And you get on that cycle and then you attempt to drop weight again, but then you are very skeptical and cynical because you've done this before and it never worked. And so I just really, it's part of my mission is to share the fact that your weight gain has nothing to do with you. It's not your fault. It's all a result of this trigger that just changed your body in some way, but you've got to get your body all the way where it needs to be through smart methods where you're not going to do harm to your body to, to create some kind of sustainable change. And that's why maybe you've yo-yoed in the past. Again, it's not your fault but it's all hormonally driven by this tumor-like thing that we just didn't fully collapse yet. Collapse that. <laughs> yeah, I, lo I love how you put that because it, it puts such a great visual and it's really easy to understand that. And I think so many people don't realize that. They, they look at it, like you said before, as a flaw. You're mm -hmm. just not doing the work. You just need to get serious and do the work. That's the other thing that just aggravates the crap out of me, but okay. Let's talk a little bit more about the addiction part of it. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with somebody who, you know, is addicted to the food that we are exposed to every day? Yeah. We remove those foods. <laughs> So we aren't, you know, for us, we are not an eat everything in moderation plan. 
Um, just because I, I know myself and clinically and through the research that it just doesn't work for the majority of people. That doesn't mean to say that, you know, you can't eat these foods forever. You know, I was chatting to one person who was considering working with us and she's like, can I just never eat a cinnamon roll ever again? I'm like, well, it depends. Is the cinnamon roll a trigger food for you? Like if you eat one one day, are you going to eat another one the next day? Or is it going to induce cravings not for another cinnamon roll, but maybe chips or anything in the carbohydrate family and then just throw you off? Then, then the answer is if that's the case, yes, you deserve much more. Saying no to that cinnamon roll is not deprivation or restriction. It's a form of self-respect. And as she's going through this journey, she'll recognize that she'll feel so much better and it will be easier to say no to this cinnamon roll. So it really just depends for other people. They can have a cinnamon roll and not need an, or want another one for, you know, three months or, you know, like for me, I just wouldn't think about it again if I ate one. Um, so, so we're all different for me. My food is ice cream. Like I'm going to eat the whole thing. And I don't believe it's because I'm a failure. I am just wired to overeat that food. My husband, he doesn't care about the ice cream, but it's chips and uh, tortilla chips and salsa. I would never go in the pantry and ever even reach for those. So it really is looking at that. And then it's, it's dropping weight. We get our clients into a state of fat burn. So figuring out where their carbohydrate tolerance level is and making sure that they eat and live underneath that level and when you eat within that range, you're not going to have cravings. You're not going to have hunger. You're not going to have withdrawal symptoms. It just really feels good. And so it's easy to support that lifestyle when it feels good. Yes. And that is so very true. And so many people look at it as de deprivation. Like you said, I did. And I, I remember being so sad. I would see other people eating what I wanted to eat and I would mourn that, but right. I was hungry. I was miserable. I, I was doing the restriction thing. I was working out every day and, you know, all that crazy stuff. But I would even look at my friends who were overweight and be jealous of them because they, they had the, you know, free will or they didn't care or whatever it was. And they felt free to eat what, you know, I wanted to eat, but because I had this crazy willpower, I would never do that. I never cheated. I never cheated. Um, and so it would just make me sad. I'd go home and I'd cry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I look at that and I'm like, that is so incredibly sad because deprivation is having high blood pressure, being pre-diabetic, being obese, being afraid to leave your house because you don't want anybody to judge you or see you. Because right. you, you know, you, you're, you're not living that's deprivation, not giving up some dumb old cinnamon roll, you know, and I see that clearly now, but at mm -hmm. the time I, you know, had that deprivation mindset. And I think a lot of people do, but if you're eating correctly, and if you can kind of go over a little bit of how that works, I don't think people fully understand that, you know, they, they have this attitude about, oh, well, you just hate carbs. You think carbs are evil. And so, you know, they don't understand that it, it's not about the carb being evil in general, but it could be evil for you, you know, certain ones. So could you talk a little bit about that, that it's, it's yeah. not that you're poo-pooing on carbs. Mm -hmm. It's just... 
Yeah, I will never stand up here and say that that carbs are evil or you know that they're bad. They just have the most profound impact on how we metabolize all of our nutrients. They're just a lever. And so if we eat above our carb tolerance level, we flip off the switch to burning fat for fuel. Right? So we have two fuel systems in the body. We're either um, primarily carbohydrate or sugar burners. I'm going to use carbohydrate and sugar synonymously. They mean the same thing or we're fat burners. And I want you to imagine a carbohydrate sugar burner that your metabolism is like a wood burning fire stove. If you could picture that in your mind, you know, you have to shove wood in there every few, I don't know what, how often every 30 minutes, I think my boys would put fire on a campfire uh, or else the flame dies down. That's why you have to eat every two to three hours. If you don't eat every two to three hours, it's also a myth that your metabolism is going to slow down. That's bogus. But if you're a sugar burner, just like that wood burning fire stove, you've got to keep fueling it, stoking that fire with more. Um, and then it's all sooty, right? It's very dirty. And so when we are primarily carb sugar burners, we produce free radicals as a byproduct. And free radicals are linked to a whole host of negative health consequences like cancer and um, speedier aging, more wrinkles, for example. Now, if we can teach the body how to burn fat for fuel and the lever that we use for that is playing with how many carbs we eat, and we're all different in that. Some people can't eat many, some people can eat quite a few and still be a fat burner. And, and so when we're a fat burner, I want you to imagine that it's like a propane fireplace, right? The energy is much more endless. You just flip the switch and it lasts for hours. It's really clean. There is no byproduct. It's not sooty. Nearly every cell in our body prefers to burn fat for fuel, but the way that we've been told to eat and the way we do eat just doesn't let them. And so that's what I'm talking about. Their carbs are not bad, but they just have the most profound impact on what type of fire, what type of metabolism we are able to implement. So I hope that that helps and makes sense. No, that was beautifully said. And I think that's very clear. And so many people just really don't understand that because they've always been told that our bodies are, have a preferred fuel source of carbs or sugar, that that's what we're supposed to burn. That, that is our, you know, our body, they, that that's what it wants and it, it burns it first. So obviously it is, but I always go back to actually, no, if you ingest alcohol, it burns that first. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that's the preferred fuel source? Cause I'm going to have to think probably most people will understand that's not true. Exactly. So and what would you say to that? I mean, I'd say perhaps, um, that's why 88% of us are metabolically unwell, Right. If we're following what we've been told that we need to eat and it's not working for the large majority of us, then there's something off there. And so the paradigm needs to change. I, I totally agree with that. And it just makes me cringe because I've lived that. I, I, I know what that is, you know, right now I, I am carnivore, but it is just by choice. It's not, you know, because I, ha and, and I, and I don't think carbs are evil or anything like that. It's just my choice. Cause I don't do well on fiber. So I, I that's why I stay and it's simple, but it's not because I hate vegetables or I think they're terrible or anything like that, you know, no, but, uh, yes, I think that does need to change. And I, I, I find it so sad that that is the, still the big message out there and you see yeah, it right. everywhere. Yeah. Oh my gosh. 
all over the place. And I, I I'm just like, oh, because it's going to perpetuate that, that, that like, like I did for 40 years of my life, you know, I, I kept thinking it was me. I wasn't doing it right. I just, I wasn't trying hard enough when I knew that wasn't right. I mean, mm. I, I know myself, I know what I do, you know? And mm. so it, it's crazy to me, but yeah. Okay. Let's see. Okay. I think we've talked about a lot of that. Okay. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about how we can accomplish that. Like, what are some things that you and your practice would do? Like, what are some stages, uh, some steps you would have the client do? Yeah. I mean, we are um, very intensive. So we focus not only on the food and the metabolism and getting the body into the sweet spot, but also from a holistic viewpoint on habit behavior, the mental, emotional, um, those habits and behaviors that we need to recreate to establish sustainable change. And so for our clients, the first step is establishing where is the body, where is your body right now, and where does it need to go to fully collapse that fat mass? That helps us to dictate the, the total length of the weight loss phase. That's step one, like where are we now and where are we headed? And then step two is how do we do that? Was We create a customized meal plan and work to get that individual so they're eating within their carb tolerance level. And we do it very precisely, very specific. So anyone can do it, but only those who are really committed to making a change because it only works if you work it. That's what we say, like what we do works, but it only works if you do come in with this a game mentality, like this is it, I am doing it. Let's hit this. And when we come in with that, that mentality, oh my gosh, the results are outstanding and it feels so good. And we're on a quest together to create sustainable change with our meal plan. We actually are able to provide 85% of our clients food at no additional cost. So our clients can use all of their own foods if they want, or they can take home our foods just to help. The dinner meal, no matter what, is always going to be on their own because I want it to be their responsibility to do one meal at a time. So it's like little baby steps and it's not totally overwhelming. So we're really holding their hand through the process where we focus on dinner and we establish new habits with dinner. What does it look like to take out, to dine out, to travel, to just go to the grocery store and buy the right foods and make the, the amount that's supportive of their unique body? So we got that. And then we're helping with the earlier snacks and meals and give timing and everything. And then once they become this expert at dinner, then we move on and we practice lunch. And then we practice breakfast and snacks. So there's this very gradual release of our food. So no one's ever dependent, but they're learning as they're going because every week they're coming in with us so that we can tweak their meal plan, help them release these foods slowly. And then also, um, you know, really understand the addiction recovery piece. Every week we talk about nutrition, but from an unconventional view, you know, we talk about the different types of metabolism, um, what veggies are actually really high in sugar, uh, what does a net carb mean and versus total carbs? Like what, what does that mean when you read a food label, how to read a food label? You know, I, I think that 
um, carbohydrates impact the body very similarly to sugar. And so I always educate our clients to take total grams of carbs on a food label and divide that by four. And that tells you how many teaspoons of sugar. I love that food item, right? So like, let's say gluten-free sugar-free quote unquote pasta, and you have a half cup at 40 grams of carbs and zero grams of sugar. Someone watching sugar would be like, oh my gosh, this is like a free food and it's gluten-free. It must just be like just this great health food. Well, it's not right because those total carbs impact the body and blood glucose very similarly to if that was 44, 40 grams of sugar. So we take the, the total 40 grams, divide that by four. That tells you there's 10 teaspoons of sugar, like acting compounds in there. That's going to just skyrocket you into this wood burning fireplace metabolism. And so we're educating on that, right? A cauliflower pizza crust, you go and you think you're making this really great decision. And here they've stuffed it with tapioca flour and potato starch and the carbs are more than just a regular pizza crust. So just that, that takes time being aware. There's all these different stages and levels of change for another person. It just might be like, okay, how do we break this habit of drinking soda all the time? What are we going to do? How are we going to replace it with a new healthy habit for another person? It might be, you know, sleep. You can't drop all this weight. If you're not sleeping, what are we going to do for that? Um, stress, you can eat all the healthiest foods in the world and not much of it, but if you're in a high stress state, you're not going to drop weight like you would expect. So we talk a lot about that and then alternate that with the behavior change, the sabotaging thoughts that might come up, um, you know, creating a new self identity and living within an alignment of that. What does that mean for you? So just all these different things every week, we're working on that while, um, you know, keeping track of what their body is doing and what they're eating. And so I, I just, I think one thing that's important is to understand that, if you haven't dropped weight on your own successfully in the past, doesn't mean that you should be able to do that in your future. Like it's okay to ask for help. <laughs> and there's this stigma associated with weight loss that you should be able to do it on your own. And the statistics show that 95% of people who drop weight regain it all within 60 days. Yeah. And then I look at it from a different perspective and think, you know, all the successful people in the world have some kind of coach, you know, a really great speaker probably has a a speaking coach behind them. Um, You you know, the, the most successful entrepreneurs probably have a business coach. So I look at it like that, right? You're just hiring a coach to help you optimize your nutrition, which is so complicated with all of this misinformation out there. And all of our changing, ever-changing environments, like it, you need someone on the outside to be able to look down and pinpoint. It might be just small, tiny tweaks. You might be keto and be like, why doesn't keto work for me? It should, you know, or I'm carnivore, whatever I might be, I'm vegan. And you probably need someone from the outside just to be like, oh, let's pull this lever. And this week, let's do this to figure out what you need. So there just should be no shame and no um, unworthiness stigma there if you, you need help. 
I love that. And you have an ongoing program, is that right? Like where you support your clients, yes. not just for a certain little specific period of time. That's right. Yeah. So for us, you know, um, our, our initial goal is to fully collapse this hungry fat mass. And once we do that, we've gradually released any of our foods and then our clients enter into maintenance and maintenance is free and it's for the long term. So I call it, you know, your recovery maintenance weigh-ins. You're just, it's a part of your process and it never ends. I think if we get in this mindset of, oh my gosh, I've done it. I've dropped this weight. Then that's a maintenance mindset, which always moves into destruction. So once we get to maintenance, we still have to have this growth mindset. We always have to be like, what's next for you? Maybe it was carnivore was next for you to keep that momentum for another person. It might be that they want to travel somewhere specific that requires them to be fit and lean. Um, There always has to be something. Maybe it's now to increase muscle mass or whatever that is to embrace the lifestyle on a deeper level and create it so that it's just 100% familiar because the brain is going to go toward what's familiar. So we can't just think over X number of weeks, we've created something familiar when it's been 40 years of a habit. And so for us, that's why maintenance is free. And it's for the long term is because for a lot of our clients, it's over a year where they need to come at least once monthly, or we have a nationwide at home program where we have clients all over the country, not next to one of our brick and mortar locations, and we serve them and they have extraordinary results. And so we have weekly or monthly for maintenance monthly um, coaching calls with them uh, to make sure and if, if someone pops up, that's okay. There's no shame in that, but we can error correct early on and catch it and be like, okay, what's, what's changing? What trigger, what, what do you need? What do we need to shift for you to keep your body into that sweet spot so that we can really establish that new set point? Uh, Absolutely. And, And I think a lot of people don't understand that either. And I know like I had no problem meeting my goals ever and, you know, losing 80 to hundred pounds, four times my life not a problem, could do that. But as soon as I hit maintenance, <laughs> uh oh, now what? I knew that's where my journey began. <laughs> that's not where it ended. Hit, 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 yeah. And, and I would fail every time. I, I shouldn't call it failure, but you know, yeah. I would end up, you know, gaining, I usually caught myself before it went, you know, way far, but still it, it's the same thing. And so I would dread it. I, I would hit maintenance and I would almost just be like, okay, now what, now what? And and I would already feel defeated. Mm -hmm. And so I think any program or any, you know, thing you do, you have to have that part of it too. the recovery process, the, you know, to make sure you don't relapse. And especially when you're talking about somebody who's addicted to food, carbs, sugar, Mm -hmm. whatever, um, that that's an incredibly important part of it. Probably mm-hmm. the most important part is having, you know, making sure you don't do that relapse or you catch yourself and before you right. get too far down, because you're going to end up right back where you were. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what is the point of that? So mm-hmm. do you have like monthly meetings kind of like, I don't, I don't want to yeah. like, like Weight Watchers does, you know, like how they have the meetings. I don't want to. Ours are always one-on-one. Wow. Uh, Yeah. So for our local clients, they'll come in once monthly. 
Um, and more often, if they need, we don't put any stipulations on that. It can only be monthly. Like if we have a client and they're like, oh my gosh, I need your support through the holidays every week. Can I come in? Or can I call you guys if they're a nationwide at home client? Sure. It's, we have the capabilities to support our clients in whatever way that they need for that follow-up. Wow. That is amazing. I'm not sure I have heard of anything like this before, you know, especially with the one-on-one that, that is amazing. And I I noticed that you have like a lot, a lot of locations, like you said, and a lot of staff. Yeah. We have a big team. Yeah. Yeah, We have a team and, and they have such different perspectives and specialties and they've come from say, you know, nutritionists and registered dietitians, but also people from the addiction recovery world um, and people who have a background. We have a PhD in psychology on our advisory board who is available for elevated coaching. Um, So just a, a lot of different variety there for folks who have experienced 100 plus pounds weight loss themselves, which I think is the number one most important aspect when you're helping others is to have, you know, experience this yourself. So we all have our own, you know, wellness stories of overcoming and creating change. That is a really interesting thing you brought up because I was actually discussing this with my husband, I think it was yesterday and talking about how I, I feel like it's, it's kind of a, a big thing for uh, somebody to have the experience if, if they're coaching it or teaching, I'm not saying it's a hundred percent needed, but it gives a different element to it because you have that relatability, you have that experience. It's not just from a book totally. because to me, like, okay, somebody who's never had food addiction, they can't fully understand. I'm not saying they can't empathize or be able to coach or whatever, but they, they don't fully understand what a food addict goes through. If they've never been, they're one of these moderation people who can actually do that for real. They, they, how can they understand that? I mean, mm-hmm. or somebody who has never been obese, they can't understand fully. They can mm-hmm. kind of get an idea based on, you know, how they look at things, how they've seen other people treat obesity, you know, what it looks like, it feels like those kind of things. But if you've never experienced it, it makes it a little bit harder to me. So I agree with you. Yeah. So I, I, I like how you brought that in. I think that's extremely important. Okay. Before we get to the tips, I want to just make sure when everything. Okay. Just out of curiosity, let's go back a little bit. When you talk about carbohydrate tolerance levels, mm-hmm. how do you decide where the level is, like, what do you do to find that level? So from our experience in helping thousands of people, you know, make these changes, we have an idea of where to start people. So with us, we're somewhere between 50 to usually 80 grams of carbohydrate, total carbs a day. And so we are going to create a meal plan somewhere within that range. Now, if I have someone who's an athlete, Um, and well, still probably I'll still play with those levels, but the levels could be their tolerance level might be higher. If it's someone who's dealt with type two diabetes, then their tolerance level is going to be lower. So it just depends on the unique individual, where they've been, their history, have they 
dropped significant weight to regain it multiple times. Like everyone's going to be different on that spectrum, but we have this range where we start and then we let the client help dictate where we're going to move from there. The speed of weight loss helps to dictate it. Hunger, cravings, how they're sleeping, um, all of those aspects. So every week when they're coming into us or when we're chatting with them over video or phone, we're asking them all these questions and looking at their progress to see how we need to move the needle. Hmm, okay. All right. I like that. Um, yeah, I think that is very important too. Um, if you had somebody who, you know, is a, is a food addict, yeah. obviously you're going to have them totally abstain from certain foods. Yes. And, and what does that kind of look like? Like what, what do you see most in your clients that mm-hmm. tend to be problems? What is the most common? I mean, those are usually the foods where people are like, Oh, I just, I can eat um, you know, anything, but I'm not going to let go of my, they start with a, my, <laughs> my bread, my pasta, mm. you know, my yeah. French fries or my beans and rice. Like it's usually whatever those foods are that you really don't want to let go of. I always say that it's about breaking the ties with the foods you say you love that don't love you back. So if mm. you're listening to this and there's a new food, like if she takes away my, and you fill in the blank, then that's likely the food that we're going to let go of for a while at least. Um, but in general, it's those kind of carby, bready, starchy, high sugar foods, no fruit juice, you know, no soda. We're going to let go of those things. We don't do any pasta or breads during the weight loss phase. And again, once we get the body where it needs to be, we will incorporate some of those foods back in, but slowly one at a time and really feel how the body feels. If those hunger and cravings come back, then we know it's a food that you just don't tolerate. And we're going to let go of that. Um, fruit, you know, um, is largely just sugar. So we really are watching out for that. Oh, wait, what, what did you just say? What? No, no. Because it, no. anybody who, who removes fruit has just, they don't know what they're talking about. Don't you know that? <laughs> I hear that often. Oh my goodness. And it's, again, it's not like you're saying it's evil or anything, but realistically, a lot of people just really probably shouldn't be eaten or at least much of it. You know, right. like, like what we're told we should be eating. Especially yeah, I, was with, um, I was working with um, a back surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon, and um, he eats really healthy. And he's like, I just got this gut and it's eight, eight pounds, 10 pounds. And I just don't know what to do. And so we walked through his nutrition and I created a meal plan for him. But the main thing I did was took out his three pairs that he was eating through the day and three pairs. Yeah. And you know, that's high fructose pretty much. And just ate a pair for, you know, breakfast. And I'd say if there is one tip I would give is to not eat a carb heavy breakfast, cause you're going to flip off the switch to burning fat for the rest of the day. Right. For a, a normal person, that's what would happen. So we just took that out. And three weeks later, he was right where he wanted to be and, um, dropped his eight, 10 pounds and got rid of his belly fat with just letting go of the three pairs a day. Did he give you some pushback on that? A little bit. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's hard for people to wrap their minds around that, but mm-hmm. I mean, what I guess gets me sometimes too, is that the fruit we have now 
is not the same thing that our ancestors ate, okay? It is bred specifically to be sweeter, bigger. So it's different. So yeah, okay, fruit we could say is healthy, whatever, but they've they've done so much modification to it that you got to kind of really think about that, you know, and maybe some people can have it a little bit more than others, but like my thing, and I remember saying these words, I am not going to give up my bananas. <laughs> yeah, I said that. Yeah. yeah. So, so guess what needed to go? Mm-hmm. Bananas. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, the other thing that I, I find was really interesting, my trigger food after I, I went keto and even uh, right at the, well, it was right before I, I transitioned to carnivore macadamia nuts. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know, and those are allowed. Right. right. But I, I could not put those down. I, I couldn't, they were we, there and I would mm, just constantly, Oh, we don't do nuts either during mm. the week. Just again, not because they are unhealthy or will necessarily not get a fat burn. I mean, if you eat a bag of macadamia nuts, it might, the thing is, is, you know, for me, I could eat a bag of macadamia nuts and it wouldn't phase my hunger at all. I'd go in and eat a regular dinner. They're just not really that filling for a lot of people. And they're such a trigger food that is just easier to be like, okay, I'm not going to eat though. They're not going to be in the house. I mean, how often those salted nuts are just so oh, good You yeah. go into the pantry to grab a handful and that's enough energy for half the day, you know, and it's not very filling in, in my experience or with our clients. So we do let go of nuts for a while. That's interesting. Okay. That makes sense. But yeah, um, it this is the bad, it was a consistency in the salt. Ooh, oh, yeah, that was so bad. It was like, I was eating one of those huge bags from Costco pig one by myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was bad. <laughs> and when they were out, I would almost panic. Mm-hmm. Addiction much? Yeah. Oh my golly. Okay. One last thing before um, we get to the, the end part is let's talk just a little bit more about stress. Mm-hmm. Real, can, can you talk a little bit more about that and how that affects weight loss? Uh, you, you, yeah. you talked a little bit about it, but could you expand just a little bit more? Sure. So we know that some stress is important, right? The acute type of stress, um, it allows us to rush to get the kids to school on time. You know, those, those type of stress events that come and go and allow us to be more productive. Well, the other type of stress, the chronic stress that we're under a lot these days, especially the last few years is not good. And so what happens when we are stressed is it increases our stress hormone, which is primarily called cortisol, right? And cortisol is this really unique hormone and it has lots of capabilities that don't, don't do the body good. One of, one of the things that it's meant to do is it's meant to, um, allow the body to release glucose. So we release glucose from the muscles where it's stored so that we have this energy to go out and run away from the tiger, right? If you think about it back in the caveman days, we had this stress response, cortisol secreted, we had more glucose in the body and we had the energy to run. Well, now when we have this chronic type of stress, we have this elevated 
uh, cortisol elevated glucose situation when we are in a state where we have high insulin levels as well, which usually is what happens when we are struggling with obesity and inflammation. Well, what it does is cortisol then a lot, uh, takes the fat cells from the rest of our body and pushes it into the belly area. So it can actually relocate the fat cells from your legs and your arms and put it in the belly. And then we know that the visceral fat is bad. We know that these fat cells also secrete more cortisol at the tissue level in your belly secreting cortisol. Then we have chronically elevated blood glucose levels. And while well, you know what happens there, we then have pre-diabetes and type two diabetes, and we get locked in this cycle of high insulin, high glucose, high cholesterol. And we're just in this state where we also can't release the fat from the fat cell to burn it. So I want you to think that this cortisol in this unique situation puts a callus over the fat cell and the fat is stuck in there. And so that's why it's very hard for a lot of people in this state to drop weight when they're in a high stress situation. I hope that made sense. Yeah. I love the way you, you do really great with the visuals. I think the callus over there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cortisol, you know, is one of those interesting things, which we need it. And it is important in a lot of things, but gosh, dang it. When it's too high for too long, it can really cause a lot of problems. And hello, that's my issue. I can already tell you that I've tested my cortisol multiple times, still high. Gosh, God, I, you know, I try to do the stress, you know, all these different stuff, the breathing, the, I'm like, Oh, come on, you know, but, uh, yeah, working on it still goodness yeah. gracious, but yeah, that's a big one. And, and I don't think people uh, put enough emphasis on that. And the yeah. other thing too, sleep mm -hmm. and yeah, briefly talk about that too. People need to yeah. know how important it is. Yes. So lots of research that shows if you short sleep, which I guess is defined as five hours or less, but even uh, a study looking at folks who slept less than seven hours, compared to a group that slept more than seven hours, the, fo the folks who slept less, ate less and weighed more. So if you sleep more, you just have different hormones being secreted, less cortisol, for example, um, less ghrelin, which is a hunger hormone. So if you sleep more, you're going to be less hungry. You'll get full easier. You'll have less cortisol. When you short sleep or you sleep even less than seven hours, you have this just different hormonal profile that makes you crave. And usually when you crave, it's like this really kind of carby, starchy, sugary food. Of course. Yes. Or sleep is so it? important. Yeah. I, right. Uh, you know, sleep. Uh, is, is so incredibly important. And I know, and I've said this before that like when I don't get enough sleep, I, I, I'm like a, like a walking doofus. I, I, I can't function. I can't make complete sentences. I mean, it's bad. My yeah. husband, you know, he looks at me and he's like, uh, yeah, I think you're going to need, you need to go to bed. Mm -hmm. That's just a, you're making zero sense, you know, so babbling idiot here, but yeah, sleep is incredibly important. Okay. So if you were to give some tips to somebody who say, can't, you know, go through a program like yours, yeah. which sounds amazing. Um, what are some things that they can do on their own that will help get them at least started? So let's see if we talk about the nutrition component, if I give just a few tips, number one would be, like I said, to not eat a carby breakfast. 
So for breakfast, letting go of the cereal and skim milk, the flavored sweet oatmeal. oatmeal, we're going to let go of that. And instead, maybe some eggs, if you like that, or if you're not hungry, you don't need to eat it, eat breakfast or cream in your coffee, if that's sufficient, or maybe a protein shake that doesn't have a base of fruit juice, but maybe some unsweetened almond or macadamia nut milk. You could put some frozen spinach, maybe some frozen blueberries if you want that. And some kind of, kind of no sugar protein powder that tastes good for some good flavor. Um, so I think that that is important. Another, maybe my second nutrition tip would be for a lot of people to eat a mid-afternoon snack, especially if you're just starting to drop weight. I think we often think, well, the less I eat, the better. And if I'm not really hungry at four, I might as well just wait. But then we get to dinner and we're ravenous and we overeat that meal. So I'd really rather you enter into your dinner meal, not really being hungry, thinking, yeah, I could eat. This sounds good, but not like, oh my gosh, where is the whole cow? I'm ready for it. So a mid-afternoon snack, I would say for the majority of people to not let go and get some good protein in there, maybe 15, 20 grams of protein, some kind of fat, and again, lower on the carbohydrate range. Um, So I think those would be my two nutrition tips. From a behavioral standpoint, I really think the biggest thing is to create a new identity before it happens. So you know, let's say you've established that you want to drop X amount of pounds. Well, why, what, what is this identity that you're moving into? And I want you to live within alignment of that identity now. So for example, if you say, you know, I've always been heavy, I always will be, and I want to drop 50 pounds. Well, your brain is going to move how you program it and you program it through the words that you use. And so you've got to change your story. You've got to change your identity. So it's not, I've always been heavy and always will be. It's, you know, I am moving into a new body and I'm going to drop this weight and it's going to be effortless. Why not? Why does it have to be hard and dreadful? Like it's going to be easy. It's going to be fun. And I am so excited. Like use those words, get yourself excited. It is exciting. And it's for the rest of your life, right? Simply because you want to. So I think using those words and then, okay, so I'm going to, I'm this lean, vibrant person right now inside of me. How would you live if you were already this lean, vibrant and healthy person? What would you have in your cupboard? What would you have in your fridge? How would you get up? What would your morning routine be? if you are already this person. So you're living within alignment of it already um, and really creating that to be your familiar place. The words that you use, your actions through the day are already in alignment with that identity you've established for yourself. That's beautiful. I absolutely love that. And, and the mindset is everything. Yeah. And that that's how, you know, when they say, dress like the person you want to be, you know, yes, like, right. like it's kind of the, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Where do you stand on intermittent fasting? I think that, um, again, from all of our clinical experience that it can be a helpful tool. Again, it depends on the individual for some people. It is just, uh, great. It feels good. It's convenient. And, Uh, They just love it and it helps them achieve their goals. For others, they overeat, compensate, binge, 
um, don't like the feeling of it. It just is not a tool for their toolbox. It's just too forced. Yeah. Yeah. It it just, it really depends on the individual. So we play with it for sure. It's definitely a tool that we have, but for some people we do pull it from the toolbox after we implement it and it's just not working. It doesn't mean that it's not going to ever work. It just means wherever they are in their uh, life right now, it is not good. Perfect. Love that. Do you have any last minute no ice or anything pretty summed it up. I think we went through everything. I think the biggest thing is just that if you have dropped weight in the past only to regain it, that it's not your fault. Uh, You are not a failure. It has nothing to do with you. And if you want to make a change, gosh, darn it, you can, Mm -hmm. and it's possible to do it in a sustainable way that feels good. So just do not let your past dictate your future and step into change if it's something that you want. Perfect. Love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Ashley. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And hey, y'all, subscribe to my channel and then go follow Ashley. Oh, wait, did you want to talk about your book real quick? Yeah, yeah. I'll put a link below, but. Sure, that'd be great. Yeah, I recently wrote an ebook and it's available for free right now to download on our website, just on the homepage, scroll down. Our website is myphdweightloss.com. So you just navigate there and fill in, I think just your name and email and it will download to your email. I went through it and I'm just going to say it's fabulous. Oh, great. So yes, I will put it below. Y'all go get you a copy of it. It's, it's wonderful. Again, thanks a lot, Ashley. Oh, thanks, Amber. It was my pleasure. I had fun. I hope it was helpful. It was wonderful. Thank you. And you have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Bye, Ashley. Bye.